Welcome to the Two Journeys Podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now on to today's episode. This is episode two in our 2 Corinthians Bible Study Podcast. This episode is entitled, Restoration for a Repentant Sinner and the Aroma of Christ, where we'll discuss 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5-17. through 17. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses we're looking at today? So we're going to talk about Paul's exhortation to the Corinthians to restore a repentant sinner to full membership, and it's a very important teaching because he zeroes in on the intentionality, the dark purpose of Satan against this kind of restoration. He says, we're not unaware of his schemes or his devices or his his treachery. And so it's really a remarkable picture of the grace of God in a community of grace in which sin is dealt with seriously, as in 1 Corinthians 5, but then there is the possibility always of repentance and restoration, what good news that is. Uh, Also, he talks, as throughout this book, I really think the home base of 2 Corinthians is Paul talking about himself and his ministry of the new covenant, his ministry of the gospel. And so we get some more indications of that as he talks about himself as an aroma of God and of Christ among those who are uh, hearing the gospel and believing. So we'll look at that as well. Well, I'm looking forward to our discussion. Let me go ahead and read 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5-17. through 17. Now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ." Andy, what does Paul mean in verse 5 about people who have caused grief? Why does he want them to be sure that the grief that was caused by the sinner was really directed to the whole church, not particularly to him? Well, I think it'd be helpful for us to see this this little section here, verse uh, 5 through 11 of 2 Corinthians 2 in light of 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, we don't know for sure that that's who Paul is talking about, but it seems so. And in 1 Corinthians 5, as you remember, uh, there's a very potent uh, chapter about uh, church discipline and about uh, a man who is committing some very grievous uh, 
overt acts of immorality. And Paul said that the church should have been filled with grief and put out of their fellowship the man who did this. They should have voted him out. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. Uh, but exercise church discipline. But then what? Does the story end? Uh, and it doesn't, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the restoration of this individual who seems to have repented. And he's talking, I think about if anyone has caused grief, I think he's talking about the sinner. The sinner brings grief. It brings sorrow and sadness. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, you should have been filled with grief and put out of this uh, your fellowship, the man who did this. There is a sense of sorrow that comes with uh, sin. But also, we're going to see later in 2 Corinthians 7, uh, the essence of repentance is grieving over sin, a genuine brokenness over it. And it seems that this individual has uh, shown grief and sorrow over his sin. And he's saying that this individual who caused grief, he didn't so much grieve me, says Paul. I'm not really the point. I mean, I'm in it. I care. But really, the, the fact is he grieved all of you. He let all of you down. Uh, we're a family together, and the things we do affects everybody. And so everybody was was let down by this individual. But then he backs it off, says, you know, not to put it too severely. I don't want to be too harsh here because he knows what we're dealing with here is an individual who wants to come back. Mm. He wants to be forgiven. He's asking for restoration. And so even here, Paul is very careful in his language. But fundamentally what's going on is when an individual in a healthy church sins, Everybody is dragged down by it and, and is grieved by it. That's what he's talking about. Now, what practical detail about church life emerges with the words, the majority, in verse mm -hmm. 6? And what does Paul mean by saying that the punishment inflicted on the sinner by the majority is sufficient for that person? Okay, it seems that there is some kind of a de democratic process in which the church as a whole votes or assents to the church discipline. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5 that all of them together, not the elders, not the deacons, but the church should have together uh, excommunicated this man, kicked him out of the fellowship. And they did this, it seems, uh, by some kind of a vote. Now, we never actually get overtly uh, asserted uh, the statement of a vote, but he says the punishment inflicted by the majority. So the majority weighs in and says, yeah, this man's got to go. And so I think the practical side of this is democratic religion or the idea of the congregation as a whole, led by the elders, yes, but they're the ones that are finally authoritative in the issue of church discipline or excommunication. Now, the sinner grieved the whole church by his sin. The church responded by inflicting a punishment, expelling him from church membership. The sinner has repented. Now they ought to welcome him back as a member what does this show us about the grace of God in the lives of sinning Christians? Well, that's a great question. I think what that shows us in terms of, of discipline is God's grace is able to operate in some of the worst situations you can imagine, in any of the worst situations that you can imagine. The fact of the matter is that God's grace was at work in the process of church discipline. I've said before, if a healthy church ever disciplines you, uh, that should be considered to be the major wake-up call of your entire life. Mm. Here, a healthy church has assented together and voted together that they think that you're probably not a Christian, you're not born again, or at least there's strong evidence that the grace of God has not reached you in a saving way, and you need to look seriously at your condition, your spiritual condition. Mm. And so this individual has taken this very, very seriously, and the grace of God has worked, it seems, a genuine 
repentance in him. And that's really encouraging. It says the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. He's had enough. It's done its work. What would the result be if they refused to welcome him back no matter how repentant he is? Mm-hmm. And what negative long-term consequences would such a hardline stand have on Christian churches around the world? Yeah, it's a very good question. It feeds into the, uh, the later issue of Satan's schemes. Um, if there were no possibility of restoration, if you are disciplined and you're out, you're done, then if you look at that big picture, what are you really saying? You're saying there is no hope of salvation for you. I mean, keep in mind, there wasn't a, a, a second Baptist and a third Baptist or a second Presbyterian and a third Presbyterian or something like that back in Corinth. This was That church was the only game in town in terms of the gospel. And so if that church said, you're no longer a member of us, neither can you ever be again, they're saying, we believe you're on your way to hell and nothing can change that. There is no possibility of forgiveness for you. Now, what effect would that have on members in good standing? You're like, mm. wow, I'm I'm like walking a tightrope yeah. over, over a, a volcano here. And it would give a legalism, a legalistic feel to the church, a sense of harshness. It also would probably promote um, some more hypocrisy, lying. People would conceal their sins for yeah. fear of being excommunicated. It, it would be um, a very severe, harsh, legalistic church uh, with with ruling by terror at that point and not a feeling that the grace of God mm. is always at work and sufficient for any and every situation. But still, you need to repent. And if you repent, I promise there will be restoration, but you have to genuinely repent. Now that's healthy. But the, the idea of a looming unforgivable sin, and not just one, but probably all of them are unforgivable. In the end, anything worthy of church discipline is unforgivable, you're out, mm. would be unbearable. Yeah, and like you mentioned, what we'll talk about in just a little while, what an effect that would have in really mm-hmm. keeping sin from being dealt with. Because yeah. sin does flourish in secrecy and in darkness, mm-hmm. there'd be this this hesitancy to yeah. bring that into the light and to genuinely uh, repent. Yeah, and he even puts the language here in verse 7, in order that he might not be overwhelmed by excessive mm-hmm. sorrow. Imagine feeling like there is nothing that can be done for me. I'm going to go to hell. There is no gospel for me anymore. Jesus mm. isn't for me. Mm. Prayer isn't for me. The church isn't for me. There's nothing for me. Mm. Uh, that's overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Yeah. So to forestall such a devastating outcome, mm-hmm. what specific things does Paul command them to do in these verses, and how would this greatly strengthen the ministry of the gospel in Corinth if they obey what he talks about in verses 7 and 8? Okay, so he tells them instead you ought to forgive and comfort him, And then he says in verse eight to reaffirm your love for him. Hmm. He doesn't say this, but I think it means reestablish your covenant relationship with him as well. Let him be a member of the church again. And so here's the thing. With with a healthy church that follows healthy patterns of church discipline, they will discipline members, but then they'll be ready to reaffirm them and reestablish them. As a matter of fact, traditionally in Baptist churches in the 19th century, a, a pretty significant percentage of the membership would be disciplined every year. Uh, but many of them would continue at worship. They would continue to come. It just was known they were no longer members of the church. Mm. And so the church was free from their bad reputation, but the church's doors were open to anyone who wanted to come. And so the idea is the uh, disciplined uh, people would be 
would be urged to come and hear the preaching and hear the singing and, and be interacting with members. And all of these would be means of grace to affect the very thing Paul talks about here, a genuine work of repentance and restoration. Hmm. And so you could imagine, you know, within a, a period of time, not right away, but within six months to a year, these individuals say, I want back in. Well, have you repented from what you did? I have. I've had time to think about it. I see what I did was evil. I don't ever want to do that again. Okay, now you can res- restore them. So that that's, I think, a, the, the rest of the story on church discipline. Churches who most of them aren't, uh, do not perform healthy church discipline. They think, oh, it's it's this harsh thing and, and unforgivable sin type of feeling and all that and this legalistic feel. It's like, oh, you don't understand how it's done. If you knew that we would actually encourage the people who are disciplined to continue to come to church and hear the preaching mm. and to be interacted with in a redemptive sort of way, not making it light, uh, as though Paul says, with such a man, do not even eat. Don't hang out with them and say, everything's fine. Don't worry about it. No, we're not saying that. It's like, I, I'm really not going to spend time with you until we. I know you've repented. Well, that's that's pretty strong. And you can't partake in the Lord's Supper. You mm. can't, you know, none of those things can happen. But at the same time, you can hear the preaching and you can be restored. I think that's a healthy addressing of sin in the life of a church. Yeah. So you would say the right practice of church discipline by a local church can be a clear test of whether that church is healthy more generally as well. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great way to put it. And and I, I know it's hard if, if you are a pastor or a church leader in a church that hasn't done church discipline in decades, if ever, you know, it's a whole different question how to get it going again. You know, it's the kind of thing, again, the punishment inflicted by what? The majority. Mm. So you got to win people over, people who are ready to do this. So that's going to take time. Yeah. But at any rate, just when, if you have a good, clear idea of biblically how it, it is carried out, and then practically and historically how it's been done in healthy churches, it gives you a little more hope. Yeah, and it seems that Paul even gets to this point in uh, verse 9 when he says, this is why I wrote, that I Mm -hmm. might test you and know whether you're obedient in everything, right? So this is a marker that Paul is looking at saying, if if you obey in this, uh, it's telling me something about how you're living more generally as well. Yeah, I mean, he uses this language of obedience. Let's keep in mind who he is. He's not just a brother in Christ. Mm. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. When he tells them to do things, they need to obey him. It's the very thing Jesus had said the night before he was crucified. If you love me, you will obey me. Mm. And so, Wes, you were just teaching about this uh, in 1 John, uh, the link between obedience and love. Right. Uh, it's a very clear theme in 1 John. And so the idea is love equals obedience and obedience equals love in 1 John. And so it is with Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll obey me. So now the apostle Paul comes along as an apostle of Jesus Christ to these Gentile churches. And he's saying, when I tell you to do something spiritually, you need to obey. And so he says the same thing in Philippians. He says in Philippians uh, 2, verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, just as you have all always obeyed, not only my, my presence, but now much more my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act, etc. He couches the whole thing in the terms of obedience. I knew your disciples of Jesus Christ because you obeyed me. You did what I told you to do. For example, if If I say you need to be immersed in water as a public testimony to your faith in Christ, you did it. That's called baptism. And if I tell you, let's meet together and have some Bible study and prayer together so you can grow, you came and we studied and you obeyed the things I told you to do. And if I told you to stop doing this with your with your uh, your kids or start doing this with your wife, uh, and then I asked the next week, did you do it? You did. And so here he's saying to the Corinthians, the reason I wrote you is to see if you'd obey me, hmm. to see if you would follow the, the clear commands that God was giving through me, and you did. You were obedient in everything. So it seems like we have two opposite ways 
that we could possibly fail when it comes to dealing with sinners in the church. We could be too lenient, right? Not dealing with sin, failing to do any church discipline, or could also be too harsh, right? Not welcoming back a repentant sinner that's been expelled from church membership. Why is it vital for churches to avoid these extremes? Mm, That's just a great way to put it. I can picture that in my mind. And I think we know that the overwhelming majority of churches are too lenient on Mm. sin and just sweep it under the rug or don't Mm. deal with it. Um, But it is possible there can be an overreaction. And it could even happen with churches that are moving uh, from disobedience in this area. They've been too lenient. Now they want to get serious about it. And it's like, yeah, you can overshoot and go the other way. swing too far back. So the idea here is just uh, have good, clear biblical instruction about what church discipline is. And this passage, 2 Corinthians 2, puts a limit the other way. You need to be ready to reaffirm love. You need to be ready to reestablish uh, somebody. This sin is not the unforgivable sin. I know that there is an unforgivable sin in the Bible uh, that Paul, that Jesus sorry, talks about with blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, but we're not even talking about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It'd be, it'd be unhelpful to extend that to be any form of disobedience whatsoever in the Christian life is a form of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. That is just not true. So the context there was specifically ascribing Jesus' exorcisms to Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Mm. So it doesn't really fit a man sleeping with his father's wife or something like that. The idea is that there are, for, you know, that all sins can be forgiven and restored. Jesus even says in that passage, all manner of sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. And so we need to be the kind of church that says, yeah, that's true. All manners of sins can be forgiven. But... Second Corinthians is probably the best book on, on describing what the process looks like of genuine repentance. We'll get there in chapter seven. It's like, yeah, it's not a light thing to be repentant. Mm. There has to be a deep work of grieving and brokenness and thinking it through and, and calling the sin the sin by its biblical name and, and making things right and restoring things that have been stolen or, or you know, fixing, mending fences and, and bur- bridges that were burned. These things have have to be done. But at any rate, 2 Corinthians 2 is saying, yes, when all that has happened, however, make certain you reaffirm your love for the person. Now, how does verse 10 relate to verse 5, and why is it important for the Corinthians to understand that Paul's judgment is not really the final issue here, but mm-hmm. that the local church is the final human court? Well, when he says, you know, he it's not so much me that he's grieved. He's kind of getting himself out of the equation to some degree. Now, yeah. he is the messenger of Christ, but he's saying, look, don't do it to please me. And I just want you to know, I'm not the judge. And so fundamentally, I want you to know, if you forgive him, I forgive him. You know, we're all right. We're good. If you tell me he's been forgiven, then I also forgive him. And if I forgive him, I just want you to know, fundamentally, if there's anything that needed forgiving, I have forgiven as a messenger of Christ, as an apostle of Christ. And I've done so in the sight of Christ for your sake, he says. So fundamentally, I kind of represent Christ to you in this regard. Now, Jesus said the same thing in John 20 when he said, um, you know, he says, receive the Holy Spirit. He breathes on them. And then he says, if you, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And then he says, if you ha- forgive anyone their sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So it's like, what's going on with that? Are we in the place of God now? No, we are in the place of God as messengers. We are messengers. Paul's going to say that in 2 Corinthians 5. We are ambassadors. So we speak. You speak on God's behalf. Mm. So I'm telling you, if you have followed this 
procedure. You follow this process. The, the individual, you've met with him. He's talked. He's shown you a new life. He's shown you uh, brokenness over the sin and all that. And you have forgiven. I want you to know that individual stands forgiven by God. Mm. So there's that human messengering of grace and mercy and forgiveness, that role we play. It seems like Paul wants them to know that full forgiveness in the sight of Christ is essential, yeah. right? In in these individuals' lives, especially in order that Satan wouldn't outwit them, right? right. That Satan wouldn't gain some sort of foothold mm-hmm. because Satan's desire seems to be exactly what we talked about a moment ago in those extremes to push mm-hmm. us toward one or the other, that sure. we would be too harsh and that Satan would gain a foothold in that way, or mm-hmm. that we would be too lenient and not deal with sin mm-hmm. as we should. How is being aware of Satan's schemes essential to avoiding his traps? And why should we study how Satan deceived us, perhaps after we've fallen into one of those traps? Yeah, this is an amazing verse, 2 Corinthians 2.11. The context is interesting, but we've already made the point that Satan has an interest in pushing churches who get serious about church discipline to be legalistic and harsh with church discipline. Um, So he wants you to be lazy in your Christian life. But if you're not going to be lazy and you're determined to do spiritual disciplines and fast and pray and study, then he's going to make you an extremist and you're going to be obnoxious to everyone you meet and you're you're going to neglect other responsibilities. He'll push you to extremes. So Mm. behind all of that, though, we need to see in verse 11, 2 Corinthians 2, 11, the idea of a dark intelligence, that Satan is a master chess player. He, he, there's a sense of, of a sequence of, of inducements that Satan would, would use, like a, like a combination on a chessboard where he moves this piece up here and that piece over there and then this piece here and you're not sure what's going on and then suddenly the trap is sprung. And so there's an idea uh, when you think of the word of devices or schemes or stratagems of a dark combination of things that Satan can use to deceive us and to cause us to sin. So aside from the immediate context of church discipline being too, too strict, aside from that, just in general, just be aware of the fact that Satan is hatching lots of plans and schemes in your life right now. And so if you should stumble into sins, sins of the flesh, sins of pride, sins of conflict with your spouse, don't just afterward repent and say you're sorry and make it right. Try to study what Satan did to get you. Mm. What did he use? Like, for example, one thing I've noticed is that he comes at us when we're tired or hungry. Like you come home at the end of the day of work and you're kind of full of your day, you're full of yourself, you're full of your own needs, you're full of self-pity, I don't know what. And next thing you know, you're in a conflict with your spouse. How did it happen? Well, because you came in with a certain me, me, me attitude mm. and you weren't ready to serve. You didn't come in through the door wanting to know what your spouse was went through that day. You're all about you. You should study that. Find out what Satan used to deceive you. I remember hearing a story about uh, one of the greatest hitters that ever lived in baseball, Ted Williams, and he was a scientist of the of 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 hitting, and he studied pitching, and he studied spin rates on balls, and and the 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 way that the bats were constructed, and all of this sort of stuff. Mm. Well, this man, the greatest scientist of hitting that has ever lived, at some point became a manager of the Washington Senators, who later became the Texas Rangers. Interesting. Anyway, <laughs> he he would, these guys would strike out and they'd go back and they'd be all angry and they'd, they'd throw their, the bat into the bat rack and sit down and, and he'd go over and say, what did the pitcher use to get you out? 
Mm. And they wouldn't know. And that drove him crazy. How can you not know? Was it a curveball? Was it a fastball? Was it inside out? What what was it? And they wouldn't be able to tell him. That drove him crazy. He eventually mm. couldn't be a manager anymore because he just couldn't <laughs> deal with this. So I th- I picture like somebody better than Ted Williams, my manager, the Holy Spirit coming and saying, what did Satan use to get you out? Mm. You should have an answer. Mm. Study his schemes. Now, C.S. Lewis wrote a whole book about this called Screw Tape Letters in which he basically made a study of what the devils did to tempt us. Mm. At any rate, let's not be unaware of Satan's schemes. Also, a Puritan uh, writer wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks. And and basically, he, he had a whole taxonomy of Satan's schemes and devices to lure us and trick us into sin. By the way, uh, there's a whole uh, uh, kind of unfolding of this concerning sexual allurement and temptation in Proverbs 7, I think it is, about a, uh, a woman of evil or crafty intent who uses a, an array of techniques to entice a young man mm. through her door and into uh, a bed of adultery. Mm. And the techniques she uses are unfolded there. And so that that's a literal thing we can read to be careful about sexual um, allure, but also in general, that's what sin does to us. It, it speaks to us, it flatters us, it entices us, it promises us things. And then next thing we know, we've been we've been lanced. So um, precious remedies against Satan's devices. We're not unaware of his schemes. That's so helpful. You know, the second half of this passage we're looking at today mm-hmm. really turns then uh, to this idea of the aroma of the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Death to some and life to others. In verses 12 and 13, what's the open door that Paul is speaking of and why didn't he walk through it? Okay, so when Paul speaks of open doors when it comes to gospel ministry, he's talking about opportunities to preach the gospel. That's who Paul was. Paul was constantly seeing opportunities and open doors. And, you know, he sees them generally in terms of, of persecution and responsiveness. So if Satan stirs up lots and lots and lots of trouble, he's being caused trouble by the gospel. And so fundamentally, Paul saw this as an open door of opportunity. And so he says, look, there's there's an open door. Just Sometimes it's just a simple opportunity, an invitation. Could be a, a, a governor inviting him for dinner and saying, you know, I've heard some things about this message, but I've never known about it. Hmm. Can you tell me something about it? That's an open door sure. right there. So Paul talks about uh, going to Troas, uh, he goes to preach the gospel of Christ and found an opportunity. The Lord had opened a door for him, but he doesn't walk through it, he says, uh, because he had no peace of mind. He didn't find uh, his brother Titus there. We don't know what's going on there or what Paul's peace of mind was. Mm. But in 1 Thessalonians, uh, you know, you see the pattern there of him being anxious about a church, and then Timothy comes with a report uh, concerning that. So I don't really know what's going on with Titus, but at any rate, Paul felt, I can't stay here, I need to move on. And so he goes on from Troas, goes on to Macedonia. Now we're going to look at the details of the last verses here, mm-hmm. 14 through 17, yep. in just a moment. But just generally, what does Paul thank God for in verses 14 through 17? <laughs> well, thanks be to God, he says, uh, you know, effectively, uh, thanks be to God that we have this, this ministry of the gospel. That's mm-hmm. what he's talking about. He's like, it's incredible that God's given us a gospel at all, but how much more uh, that he's made us, as you'll say in chapter five of the same book, uh, ambassadors of God, God, as though God himself are making his appeal through us. Thanks be to God who leads us, he says, in triumphal procession, that that basically we are given this incredible role so that not only are we spared from hell, 
we're also spared from wasting our lives in things that don't have any eternal consequence. Mm. So by the grace of God, we have this ministry. That's what he thanks God for. Now that image you just mentioned of a triumphal procession is a powerful run. A powerful one. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in the first century, a victorious Roman general would be mm-hmm. given the honor of a parade in Rome before mm-hmm. throngs of adoring citizens. Mm-hmm. Included in the parade are both honored soldiers who made that victory possible mm-hmm. and defeated foes who are going to their execution. Mm-hmm. Which do you think Paul sees himself as in verse 14 as he uses this image? Well, you know, they're going, he's going to say in chapter 3, we go from from glory to glory. Uh, we go from victory to victory. Paul is just on a, he's on a winning streak here. Mm-hmm. Even though he's getting beaten up pillar to post, everywhere he goes, he wins people, eternal souls, uh, to faith in Christ. And they're going to spend eternity in the new heaven, new earth because the gospel came to town. And so this is a victory train is what it is. Mm. And and so Paul has such a very optimistic view of the gospel. And it's been going now for 2,000 years, a triumphal procession from place to place, from unconverted elect person to the next unconverted elect person and leaving behind converted elect people hmm. who then are growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ. What an incredible thing that is. And Paul has such a beautiful picture of of triumph as we move from place to place. But you mentioned there are also uh, enemies who were in chains and going to uh, to their execution. And so we need to be aware of the fact that the gospel uh, has both a positive and a negative impact. The gospel doesn't just speak of salvation, but it also speaks of salvation from damnation and damnation for those who will not obey its message. Mm. I mean, Jesus made this very plain in John three thirty six when he said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Mm. So basically, when you come to a town that's never heard the gospel before, God's wrath is already on them. Mm. And you come to deliver people from that wrath. That's the fragrance of life. But other people didn't realize they lived in the city of destruction. And you look on nothing but harbingers of bad news. And that's what we could say is is the stench of death. And so it's not just sweetness and light when they come to preach the gospel. Mm, So that stench of death and that that aroma of life really is dependent on the audience, right? Who yeah. who we're standing before proclaiming this gospel message. For some, it will be yeah. that message that leads them to repentance, to salvation, but for mm-hmm. others, it will be uh, just the aroma of death. It will be uh, more of a, a picture of what's to come for them yeah. in judgment. Yeah, and, and I think that's going to happen. If you preach the true gospel, first of all, fundamentally, we're preaching a savior, Savior from what? We're talking about salvation. Salvation from what? We have to make very plain, as Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, Mm -hmm. and many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I think Paul has the same framework in mind here. We are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. You've got both categories. Mm. And so you come to town and start preaching, you're going to talk about the two roads, and you're going to say all of you are on a road to hell. You're on a road to destruction. Some of those people repent and believe, and they'll be now on a road of life. What about the rest? You're still on a road to destruction. You're Mm. on a road to hell. You're not going to be very popular with a message like that. But that's why Paul says, to some wear the fragrance of life, and to others the stench of death. So we end up stinking to them. People hate the smell, uh, and it's not a literal smell, obviously, but they hate the, the feeling they get around you. 
you. Mm. You just make them feel awful and they don't want anything to do with you. How should these themes challenge us in our own gospel witness? And mm. what's the significance of Paul's question at the end of verse 16, who mm. is sufficient for these things? Yeah, this is an amazing statement. It's almost like Paul is overwhelmed by the very words he's just written. Mm. To be the aroma of life to those who are being saved and the stench of death to those who are perishing. Who is equal to that? I, I'm not equal to that. that mm. I'm, that's a far greater eternal impact and consequence than I could ever be equal to. Hmm. But this is what's been entrusted to us as the messengers or the ambassadors of the gospel. And so it should be very humbling to us to realize. So for, for me, I'm convicted. Am I willing to be the aroma of life and the stench of death to some people, knowing it's not always going to be a positive outcome? Some people are going to reject. They're going to be hardened. Mm. And we need to keep this in mind also, because I've heard this sometimes taken out of context and misapplied. And that's Isaiah 55. It says, God's word will not return void. Well, what that verse actually says is that it will achieve the purpose for which it was sent. Mm. And to some, it's salvation. And to others, it is hardening and mm. ultimately judgment. Yeah. So God's word will do what it was sent to do, but it's not always sweetness and light. So just, a, a like you said, a humility before mm -hmm. God's work in salvation. Mm -hmm. And then just, a, I think, a dependency, too, for me as I read these verses, thinking like, who who is sufficient for these things? Well, none mm -hmm. of us, right? God, you alone mm -hmm. can give life to those mm -hmm. who are dead. And it's absolutely necessary if there's to be any fruit. In yeah, that. I don't think we can do any better than Paul's humbling statement in uh, 1 Corinthians 3, where he says, I planted the seed, Apollos watered but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but mm. only God who makes things grow. So that's even speaking positively. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm not equal to any of this at all, but we still have to step up and do the ministry God's entrusted to us. All right, in verse 17, how does Paul characterize his ministry? And maybe what final thoughts do you mm -hmm. have for us as we wrap up our time today? Yeah, so in verse uh, 17, he says, you know, we're not peddlers of the gospel. Uh, we, we don't, we're not selling it. And I think ultimately we're looking at money or gain. We're not in it for earthly gain. We're not in it for money. And there's lots of religious charlatans. There were religious charlatans in Greece long before uh, the apostle Paul came to town, mm -hmm. long before Jesus. Yeah. Uh, there are people that made money on religion. Religion has always been a moneymaker. And so we, we think about televangelists or you know some of these big church pastors that, that are not preaching the true gospel and making tons of money. I read about one whose name you would know Know if I said it, but he's very, very well known, and he got an advance uh, a book deal of ten million dollars before he'd even written the book. But that publisher knew how much his books would sell, and wow. that's what it was worth to him. Hmm. Uh, and so we, Paul said, we're not like that. We're actually, I was doing better financially as a ladder climbing Jew who was hmm. in good with the uh, chief priests and the Sanhedrin. Yeah. I was making big bucks because yeah. they were wealthy men. Now I turn my back on all of that. We do not peddle the word of God for profit. Mm. We are speaking as men approved of God to proclaim to you a message of salvation. And so I guess as we close today, it's to realize the, the joy of the gospel and the seriousness of gospel ministry. And for me as a pastor, to try to live up to that by the way I preach, and for all of us as Christians, to be so very thankful for the truthfulness of the gospel. It tells us the truth 
concerning our sinfulness and a full restoration and grace that's possible through faith in Christ and to realize at the end of all of this, this beautiful, wonderful fragrance that is in our spiritual nostrils, we've only begun to be mm. smelling the air, the fresh air of, of salvation. You know, you think about the tree of life. I wonder if it has a fragrance mm. on the both sides of the river, the water of life flowing clear as crystal and the fruit on those trees are the healing of the nations and the leaves are for the healing of the nations. And you look at that and you think, wow, the fragrance must be awesome. So yeah. I can't wait, wait to smell the life of heaven. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Andy. This has been episode two in our Second Corinthians Bible Study podcast. We want to invite you to join us next time for episode three, entitled The Superior Glory of the New Covenant, where we'll discuss Second Corinthians chapter three, verses one through 18. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.